1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, May 28th, 2023. And whoa, uh, <laughs> we got a lot of information about some of the details in the documents case this week. I'm your host, Allison Gill.
2: And I'm Andy McCabe. Uh, first, Allison, when we noted the news two weeks ago that there was no news, that was exactly right. According to new reporting, the document's grand jury hasn't met since May 5th. And we also have information from a new informant that worked at Mar-a-Lago, along with new information on Evan Corcoran's detailed notes.
1: Yeah, like like 50 pages worth, right? Yeah. And it's like, that's... He took really, really detailed notes, and and it reminds me a little bit of when Donald Trump was really angry at Don McGahn for taking such detailed <laughs> notes in the Mueller investigation. <laughs> He's like, "What kind of lawyer takes notes? No, no, no notes." Uh, well, now we have that situation again, and we got some information about a tech company subpoena, along with an expansion of the live golf tournament arm of the investigation, and. A few of the Oath Keepers have been sentenced now, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and then we'll take some listener questions. But Andy, let's talk about what blew my mind this week in the news, and that's the expansion of the documents probe into foreign real estate deals between Donald Trump and seven foreign countries. And this comes from The Times. Federal prosecutors overseeing the investigation into the former guy and his handling of classified documents have issued a subpoena for information about Trump's business dealings in foreign countries since he took office. Uh, The subpoena, Andy, went to the Trump Organization. And we don't know when, nor do we know what Jack Smith was wanting to find uh, when he issued that subpoena. But it sought details on the Trump Organization's real estate licensing and development deals in seven countries. China, France, Turkey, Kuwait, UAE, Oman, and... Saudi Arabia. That's right. That's, and you know, of course that stands out to me because we learn in this story that the subpoena for these real estate and licensing documents was part of that little tiny snippet that we got in a New York Times report a couple of weeks ago that he was looking for information about the Live Golf Tournament and that that was somehow connected to the documents case. And later in the show, when we talk about some new information we're getting from a, a guy who helped Walt Nauta move some boxes, that that also has a role in in, you know, because he helped pack pack an SUV to go to, to Bedminster, which is where he had met with the Saudis to discuss the live golf tournament. So what are your what are your thoughts about uh this I mean, this was a bombshell, especially since there hasn't been any activity since May 5th. And then we just get this information that that all of a sudden They're looking for all these real estate documents and deals in seven foreign countries. Maybe maybe it was a dead end? You know, really
2: hard to say at this point. Allison, because we tend to think of these investigations, um, quite naturally, from the perspective of the information that we know, right? And we know that they're deep into the documents case. We know that they're probably getting close to the point of wrapping things up and potentially putting, you know, kind of handing it over to the grand jury for a vote on potential indictments. And so, we think about all that in terms of, well, have they polished off the details about Walt Nada and maybe moving the boxes around? This subpoena, specifically about the live golf stuff a week or so ago completely took us out of that mindset like wow what does this mean how is the live golf tournament even connected to any of this stuff well now we get maybe a little bit bigger view as to the relevance here if if what jack smith is going after is information about this wide swath of foreign countries well we know That the one country on this list that actually entered into an agreement with the Trump organization uh, in the last few years is, of course, Saudi Arabia. And it had to do with the licensing of the Trump name to some real estate ventures, uh, including a golf tournament or golf facility. And, of course, he is deeply tied in with the with the live tournament, which is a Saudi funded and organized professional golf tournament. So. Connecting the live inquiry to this broader look at foreign governments and any agreements that they may have entered into with Trump really gives us a whole new window into what might be included in the documents case. Um, Several people have speculated that possibly what they're looking for is motivation, right? We've always wondered. We know we kept hundreds of documents that were classified. We know we kept you know, uh, national defense information, classified information that he should have given back. But the question hanging out there was always why? What did Trump intend to do with this stuff? Was it something as uh, minimal as, you know, souvenirs and memories and things like that? Yeah, that's hard to believe, but nevertheless, the possibility. Or was it the opposite end of the spectrum? Something as potentially nefarious as he was maybe intending to use this information or broker it, offer it, give it to someone, use it as leverage against enemies. Well, this subpoena to the foreign governments really sheds potential light on that. Like, is this a way of getting at why Trump was holding on to these specific documents?
1: Right, because we know that there's been a a $2 billion investment from the Saudi wealth fund against the advice of Saudi bankers and people who manage that wealth fund. To to Jared Kushner, and we all sort of wondered what that was in payment for. And I think the reason we have these general like go to thoughts of well, he was doing he it was because he's such a transactional guy. That's right? right. Like everything is a quid pro quo for him, and you know. And, and I, I was also wondering about the you know the lack of Magnitsky sanctions against uh, Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and then. We had that weird blockade against our ally, Cutter, in the region that was all of a sudden lifted once the Cutter Investment Authority invested into Kushner's 666 Fifth Avenue debacle. So it's all just been this really, like, blatantly and obviously transactive behavior on, on the part of the Trump administration and Donald Trump, the Trump organization. So, of course, it all occurred to us naturally to be like, well, maybe he was you know, I think it was uh, Mary McCord who said, you know, it could be blackmailing the Saudis into holding these tournaments at his properties using some of this intelligence or, uh, you know, trading it for uh, maybe the $2 billion, you know, whatever it could possibly be for. But that's where our brains instantly go is his transactional uh, sort of way of life.
2: That's absolutely right. And, and, you know, let's think about it in terms of the case that ultimately Jack Smith may be putting on. Obviously there's no case yet, there's been no indictment, but uh, if there is an indictment, he's got to prove the elements of these crimes, whether it's withholding or uh, misuse of classified, whether it's an espionage act uh, uh, for, for taking national defense information, or whether it's obstruction, he's got to prove the elements of each of those crimes it's not necessary to prove motivation uh, it is necessary, as we've discussed many times, to prove intent, but it's not necessary to prove motivation. But it's incredibly helpful. So to have this question hanging out there of why did he go to such lengths to keep this stuff? Why did he go to so many lengths to try to obstruct the Justice Department and the National uh, Archives from getting back their material? Well, if you can answer that question, although it's not essential to any one of those potential charges, it enables the jury to understand more about why the defendant. and This case potentially Trump uh, uh, acted uh, along these sort of uh, criminal lines.
1: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually don't have to be successful in that act in order to. If you're just trying to prove intent, like he doesn't have to have used the documents. There doesn't have to be proof that he used these documents to get the live golf tournaments at his course, for example. That didn't have to, you know, play out through fruition in order for there to be the intent. To do so, am I am I correct in that? Because I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the Bill Barr memo that there was a big fight to get you know released uh, about his decisions to not prosecute for obstruction of justice. Uh, that was you know written by the Paydag. It took like a weekend, right? Uh, that you know they didn't have any time to actually review the Mueller report before they put that out there. But what Bill Barr contends is that in order to prosecute for obstruction of justice, there has to be an underlying crime that was completed in order for you to obstruct the justice of the investigation into that crime. And that was his reason for saying, even if we didn't have an OLC memo that said you can't prosecute a sitting president, we wouldn't have prosecuted Donald Trump because there was no underlying crime that he was trying to obstruct, which is also false. But that was his purpose. And I'm wondering if that... Memo, because it's a standing memo at the DOJ, I think Jack Smith will probably have to contend with those arguments that Bill Barr made in that memo.
2: You know, I have to say, I, I think P- Barr's reasoning in that memo is likely disregarded by this Justice Department because it does diverge from kind of uh, conventional thinking about obstruction. You are correct. There doesn't have to be a successful crime in order to have a question of obstructing the investigation of that crime. You don't have to have been successful in your initial criminal act. But I but I do think it's helpful in terms of, you know, the prosecutors have to tell a compelling story to the jury. And part of that story is, uh, is understanding why a person acted in the way they did, especially when you talking about something about obstruction, right? You're right. You don't have to prove the underlying crime that was the the concern that drove the effort uh, to obstruct but it's it helps the jury kind of understand why the defendant acted the way they did and it eliminates a question that could be interpreted as reasonable doubt right so you're as a prosecutor trying to lay in as many of these facts as you can to to, to enable the jury to see this as one smooth narrative Here's what they did. Here's why they did it. Here's how it's illegal. Uh, If there's a gap in that narrative, every time you have a gap, you have another place for reasonable doubt to be inserted.
1: Right. And I am like 100% certain that um, if an obstruction indictment comes, which is Title 18 U.S. Code 1519 when it comes to uh, obstructing uh, justice with with regard to the classified documents or documents with classified markings, that Trump will use that bar memo that says you can't obstruct justice without an underlying crime as part of his defense. Uh, And so I'm assuming that uh, Jack Smith, we've seen this memo, at least parts of it. So I'm assuming Jack Smith knows about it and and has already prepared, prepped a defense, because as you said, and as we're going to go into in a little bit later in the show, the Wall Street Journal said, we're, you know, we're wrapping this up. Uh, Last week, you said, uh, you know, now they're just doing those tying up the loose ends things. And one of those loose ends is the national archives handing over uh, documents that show that the that they discussed with and Trump understood the the processes for declassifying documents right so i think that sort of tying up a loose end that that's kind of what makes it seem like we are close to a charging decision here
2: absolutely absolutely and we're here that's why we're hearing more of these stories about for instance we'll get into this in the next part of the show but the Merlago employee who allegedly assisted Walton in moving the documents around. That again, that's another one of these. It's an important fact. It's an additional witness to some activity that is that could be at the very core of an obstruction charge. And so it's only now that we're learning about each one of these kind of crucial witnesses. Uh, their testimony's been locked in. They've been in front of the grand jury. Prior to that, they're interviewed at length by the agents and, and uh, attorneys who are investigating these cases. Uh, those are the sorts of things that you really have to tie off before you say to the grand jury, "Okay, you've heard all the evidence. You've you've filled in all the holes. Now it's time to vote."
1: Yeah, and just like Jack Smith has is has and is anticipating some of the Trump defenses, whether they're outlined in a letter to Congress <laughs> to tell the DOJ to stand down or whether he hears them on a CNN town hall, he's prepping for those defenses uh, on the Trump side. And I'm assuming he's also prepped to counter that Bill Barr memo from the Office of Legal Counsel that says that an underlying crime is required, which is just totally and completely untrue.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Totally agree.
1: All right, cool. Well, uh, that's the first big chunk. Uh, We've got more huge news, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, There, you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
2: Okay, AG, we are back, and we're going to move now to a Washington Post report that a second witness who helped Walt Nada move the boxes the day before DOJ came down to collect classified documents pursuant to the subpoena on June 3rd. So this is really interesting because it's timing that investigators have come to view as suspicious and an indication of possible obstruction. Now, the new details also broaden the timeline of possible obstruction episodes that investigators are examining, a period stretching from events at Mar-a-Lago before the subpoena to the period after the FBI search there on August 8th.
1: Mm, Yeah. And that's really interesting to me that The timeline has broadened, right? Because the way that I was always picturing it in my head is the obstruction happened up until the search, Uh, but then you know, you and I have been talking extensively about a lot of things that happened after that search that could also fall under the uh, category of obstruction, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, like you said, and at the top of the show, the grand jury on the documents case has not met since May fifth. Although, as a side note, the grand jury working on the Save America pack money, you know, wire fraud probe, they're still meeting. And last week, they got testimony from someone named William Russell, who's a Trump aide that worked for him at the White House and is being paid by the Save America PAC. But let us I, I really want to talk about this move in the boxes the day before Jay Bratt and everybody gets down there, right? And let's rec- recall, Jay Bratt went down himself because he's probably one of the only guys on the planet with clearance high enough to even handle these documents. So he goes down on June 3rd and they have on tape Walt Nada and a pal who out of the kindness of his heart was like, that looks heavy, man. Let me help you with those boxes. Yeah. Uh, helped him move stuff the day before. Uh, and, you know, uh, and we also have information that it was that night after Walt Nada moved some of those boxes with his pal that they called up Jay Bratt and said, you can come on down tomorrow now. Right. So, yeah, that how does that time? I mean, it's just. I guess that's part of the narrative you were talking about in, in the the first segment of the show. Like you paint that picture and everyone goes, really? You're moving stuff around the day before and then you move stuff around. Then you call them up and say, come on down tomorrow. Like that is just fishy and it goes toward intent, right? It helps tell that story, that narrative.
2: It absolutely does. And then you layer on top of that the fact that we now know from discussion of Evan Corcoran's alleged 50 pages worth of notes that both Trump and NADA had this detailed, specific understanding of exactly what Corcoran was doing. So before Corcoran goes to do, conduct his own investigation in the infamous storage room to collect the documents that he intends to hand over to Jay Brat the next day or, or, or you know a day or so later, that's when these boxes are being moved. Now, tie into that Nada's previous testimony, which sounds like it's been all over the map, but at least at some point in his interactions with the investigators, has indicated that Trump told him to go to the storage room and move boxes around. So you're starting to see what could have been a very carefully planned out act of obstruction, moving things in or out of the storeroom immediately prior to Corcoran's search and the turnover of a small number of documents to Jay Brad.
1: Yeah. And and this second guy's lawyer, not Nauta, right? Nauta Good Witness. This other guy, his lawyer's name is John Irving. He's representing the guy who who helped Nauta move the boxes, said that he didn't know what was in them. He was just trying to help Walt out. Uh, And here's the quote. He was seen on Mar-a-Lago security video helping Walt Nauta move boxes into a storage area on June 2nd, 2022. My client saw Mr. Nauta moving the boxes and volunteered to help him. The next day, the employee helped Nauta pack an SUV for Trump to head to Bedminster for the summer. And that's like, what'd you put in that SUV to go talk to the Saudis? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's I think it's fascinating that because, you know, you and I were like, well, while Nauta can't be the only guy on these videotapes. Right. And as we yeah. know, there was like a process to get these videotapes. And the first subpoena of the videotapes to the Calamari's junior and senior had gaps Gaps in those videotapes. So Jack Smith went to the company that stores all the software company that does all the storage and presumably got those gaps filled in. And here we have this. Now, it would be especially uh, obstruction-y if the gap in the tape was that particular time frame of moving these boxes in and out of the storage facility do you know what i mean well, you,
2: you know that's exactly what they were looking for right now and <laughs> it, i'm not, to be fair um there's oftentimes you know technical difficulties with things like surveillance video and recordings and things like that that could uh, you know account for gaps at different places where there should be recording But as an investigator, that's not, that's not what you're thinking. You're, you're going for that backup recording. You're going for that original source recording that's held by the tech company because you're thinking like, Hey, what have I not seen so far? Who else is going to show up on this video? What else might they be doing? And this new witness, I mean, this is like, this is like the guy who just happens to walk by and help a dude lift a body out of his trunk, but right? He has nothing to do with this case. He's not uh, thought of likely as a subject or a suspect in any way. He is a completely clean, hey, I just happened to be walking by, saw him moving some boxes, thought I'd lend him a hand. and And now here he is with a key piece of insight into this narrative. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And and let's think about the timeline, too, because the subpoena for the surveillance footage to the calamaris or to the Trump organization, the calamaris are kind of in charge of security at the Trump organization, would be the point of contact for these tapes. That subpoena happened June 24th, three weeks after the June 3rd visit. And so at some point in there. I, you know, I don't know if they developed evidence that led to the subpoena of the surveillance tapes or if they just subpoenaed the surveillance tapes because they figured it would be a good idea to have the surveillance tapes because when they were down looking at the storage room and Corcoran said, you're not allowed to open any of the boxes, they looked up and noticed that there were cameras in the hallway and said, we should probably get a subpoena of these tapes. I'm not sure how that came about. But June 24th, and there was, by the way, a phone call, a discussion between Evan Corcoran and Donald Trump the night of that subpoena, the June twenty fourth surveillance tape subpoena that had to be handed over to Jack Smith using the crime fraud exception to pierce attorney-client privilege. That's right. They wanted information about that phone call, and then so six twenty four, they subpoena the tapes, and then it's not it, the whole month goes by, like maybe six weeks goes by before the they're authorized to get the search warrant. And so, what I'd like to know is how soon after. They got the surveillance tapes. How long did it take to hand them over? How long, you know, then they realized there were gaps. Then when did they go to the software company to get the original tapes? And did that lead to them speaking then to Walt Nata? Or did they have the Walt Nata footage before they got the original source tapes? Uh, and But in any case, it was after all of that developed uh, that they were able to get the search warrant to go down and uh, actually retrieve an additional 103 documents or whatever.
2: Yeah, no doubt. It'd be also interesting, just as a side note, to see how the Trump organization in Mar-a-Lago handled the ongoing video surveillance after they got hit with a subpoena for that for that coverage. Like, you could see... Oh, like, that- <laughs> did they turn the cameras <laughs> off? Exactly. <or? laughs> exactly. Oh, we just decided that day to stop recording what we were doing down in the basement because, you know, I don't know, why not? Uh... It's getting expensive, whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, and, you know, I think we, we, you know, I was assuming that uh, because of the reporting said that they got the tapes for all of the Trump properties, uh, but they must not have been able to, either one, they must not have been able to develop evidence to be able to search any other properties, or two, they did and searched them and we don't know about it. Uh, But what I wanted to address real quick was that that timeline um, expansion past August eighth, because I had, you know, I have a th- I have a theory as to what it is. I think that uh, the Washington Post had posited that it was some reporting from the Guardian about that. Remember the the hapless uh, Trump staffer who worked for the Save America PAC that uploaded a box of presidential schedules that may have had previously classified information in it onto a laptop or That's a hard right. drive or something. And that's what they were thinking. Perhaps uh, could have been part of the obstructive act. But what I really am focused on, and the the, the way and the reason I lean toward this is because the amount of emphasis that Jack Smith put on this was to get the names of the two investigators that did the additional searches to the properties, uh, to these other properties after a, a, you know Judge Beryl Howe ordered them to, and then the DOJ asking for the names, and then the Trump team being like, we don't want to give you their names. And then they had to give the names over and then they subpoenaed those uh, two folks and asked them questions too. All of that occurred after the search warrant. And I think with the amount of attention that that additional search and those two witnesses were given, I feel like that that might have something to do because didn't we hear in some public reporting that Uh, one of the Trump lawyers, a parlatory, was trying to stop those additional searches from happening. That could be the obstructive act. And he just left the team.
2: We did. We did. And think about this. We now know, okay, so we knew from Judge Howell's uh, order that piercing the attorney-client privilege, we knew that Judge Howell really saw um, in that pairing of Evan Corcoran and Donald Trump, she saw Trump as likely Using the privilege to commit a crime, not so much Corcoran. We now know that Jack Smith is looking from from all the things we've talked about this week very closely at how Evan Corcoran's search of the Mar-a-Lago storage room may have been obstructed by Trump. So he's mm-hmm. thinking Trump and his his closest you know flunkies, what have you, are actively hindering his lawyer's efforts to conduct a thorough search. Well. I'm going to want to then talk to the two people that the Trump organization hired to search the other properties because the same thing might have happened to them. Like, you're not worried that those two people were part of the conspiracy or, or did a terrible job. I mean, you want to certainly ne- understand how thorough was their search. But now you're trying to match up, like, let's hear what they did and match that against what steps may have been taken at those properties before these additional searchers. Showed up to do what they've been paid to do.
1: Yeah. Did Trump instruct Parlatori to tell these two guys where to look or where not to look, which exactly. is sort of something that Jack Smith is looking at with uh, respect to Corcoran? So, all of that kind of stuff falls under the blanket uh, of obstruction of justice. And, um you know, just to talk about this uh, other guy represented by John Irving for a second, he's a longtime Mar a Lago employee. The lawyer didn't want to identify who he is, but he is cooperating with the government. He's been questioned multiple times by authorities. And we know that a lot of people got brought back into the grand jury several times before they went on hiatus on May 5th, uh, presumably because now they're prepping PROS memos or, or or their or declination decisions. Let's be fair. Right. right. Uh, whatever the de- decision is to to send over to uh, Merrick Garland. And again, th- it's more informative than uh, than it is uh, asking permission to go forward with the with any uh, charging decisions or not, because, uh, as we've said multiple times, and as Merrick Garland has intimated, he is not going to override anything that Jack Smith says unless he like is guilty of some sort of prosecutorial misconduct or goes outside of the rules of the Department of Justice, which I don't see happening. Um, now, Irving, this lawyer for this other guy, also represents several witnesses. In the investigation, his law firm is being paid by Trump's Save America PAC. He seems less obstructive with this fella than uh, whoever the lawyer is over there for Walt Nauta, who's just clammed up after the DOJ threatened to charge him with perjury for the first initial lie lies that he told to the to the investigators. Uh, but it, the story goes on here to say that Donald Trump told his aides that he wanted to make sure he could keep papers. That he considered to be his property, so there's some intent, right? And the prosecutors have been separately told by more than one witness that Trump kept classified documents out in the open, where others could see them, and sometimes showed them to people, including aides and visitors. And now we're dipping into espionage laws uh, more than obstruction, if that, if I'm if I'm correct in my uh, presumption there. What what are your thoughts about him showing stuff to people?
2: I mean that that is really the biggest wild card here, and I think the question kind of shifts our focus to the government's one of the government's kind of primary objectives in this entire investigation uh, and it's not the thing that we we're looking at and talking about and wondering if indictments are coming, but it's rather understanding a potential threat to national security. That is really the core, the foundation of every counterintelligence investigation, whether it heads in this direction with espionage or mishandling classified or obstruction charges or something like that. You're trying to understand what information was lost, what information may have been compromised and what sources and methods may be in jeopardy. And so when we talk about like, what could he possibly, who could he possibly have been showing this stuff to, you know it really leads you down this road of like who might have been there how do we develop a better understanding of the the foot traffic in and out of that office or wherever those docu- else those documents may have been and i think that gets us back to the subpoena we were talking about at the beginning of the show the subpoena to the trump organization for information about deals they may have entered into with foreign entities or foreign countries That, to me, is really, you know, kind of uh, the subtext of what uh, Jack Smith and his team are likely looking for here. And it's to understand what damage may have been inflicted to national security.
1: Yeah, because there's also an ongoing risk assessment um, that's being conducted by the ODNI at at the same time. And that was what was inextricably linked to the criminal investigation that allowed the arguments to the 11th Circuit that everything needed to be handed back to the Department of Justice, both non-classified and documents with classified markings. So, All right. um, We have still more breaking news. We're going to talk about uh, Evan Corcoran's notes uh, and how (laughs) detailed they were uh, as soon as we just take this quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome back. I want to talk about Evan Corcoran's notes, but first, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, came out with a story this week and they say special counsel jack smith has all but finished obtaining testimony and other evidence in the documents case Uh, some of trump's close associates are bracing for his indictment according to the journal they anticipate being able to fundraise off of a prosecution they're already doing that planning and in recent weeks prosecutors working for jack smith have completed interviews with nearly every employee At Trump's Florida home, from top political aides to maids and maintenance staff, and that just blows open this concept of he's only talked to a few people, right? Because you and I had had this discussion before. How do you even check on whether you know classified information is at risk of being seen by other people? And you said, Andy, they have to talk to every single maid, they have to talk to every single maintenance guy, janitor, staffer, everybody who works at that hotel, and everybody who works for the office of Donald J. Trump at, you know, at his little Mar-a-Lago resort there. And apparently that's all been done. So that's what the Wall Street Journal is reporting.
2: Yeah, that's a huge amount of work. And, And that is really the investigators taking that net and spreading it as wide as they possibly can. You never know who might have seen something anything that's relevant to your inquiry, whether it's something as minimal as uh, the presence of a document in a certain place that it shouldn't have been, or maybe it's just a maintenance worker or someone else who observed someone entering Trump's office, maybe by themselves without you know without authorization to have been in there. There's all kinds of, uh, of first-person credible um, testimony that you could tap into. Now, maybe 90% of those interviews get you nowhere. doesn't make any difference. You do them anyway. You canvass that entire place, anybody who goes in there on a regular basis, anybody who works there, anybody who works around those areas that you're interested in, um, and it sounds like they've completed that work at this point.
1: Yeah, and we don't know whether that testimony of the guy who helped Nata move the boxes came before they subpoenaed gaps in the tapes. Or whether it came as a result of something they saw on the videotapes. That's the whole reason you interview everybody. They might have not known that Walt Nauta and him were moving boxes on on June 2nd until they talked to somebody who said, oh, I helped a guy move some boxes on, on June 2nd down to that storage room. Yeah, 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 I, I did that. And then, you know, and, and like I said, we don't know from the public reporting yet which came first, the chicken or the egg. But those are the kinds of things that you can discover through interviewing everybody uh, on the property. And that's why it's so important.
2: There is, I guarantee you, there is a standard, a standardized list of questions that every employee, every contractor, every maintenance worker was asked. And one of the questions on that list has to do with the the infamous basement storage facility, the boxes that are in there, whether or not you've ever been in there picked one up, or gone in there and set one down, or seen anybody else do that. So... That kind of standard, um, uh, you know, list of issues that's run past everyone, you know, could uncover exactly that sort of witness.
1: Yeah. And, and again, I'm not saying that this happened, but if they talk to that guy and he said, oh, yeah, we moved the boxes and they go, huh, that's weird. We don't have that on the video. We should probably, you know, that we got from the calamari's. We should probably go, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily the way it happened. If it is, boy, woo, howdy, that is obstruction just right yeah. down the middle. Uh, but, uh, again, that's why those, uh, interviews with everybody is so important. And, and just like you said, Andrew, the special counsel team conducted a flurry of grand jury interviews in recent weeks that appeared to tie up the loose ends. You had talked about this on the last show, Mm -hmm. uh, when we didn't have a lot of news, but we learned that, that NARA was going to hand over 16 documents that had to do with instructing Trump on the declassification processes. Basically, you know, we told you exactly how this goes and you signed off saying you understood or whatever it is. Uh, And um, that happened, that transfer happened on May 24th. So just a couple of days ago. And like you said, Andrew, you were saying, that's one of those loose ends where you want to just make sure you have evidence in response to a potential defense, not necessarily as part of your prosecution.
2: Yeah. and, And from everything we've seen over the last couple of weeks, they are, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of how much evidence they have is sitting in that bucket, right? From the documents that NARA has turned over to testimony from uh, attorneys to uh, campaign folks so, like, you are filling that bucket with as many different witnesses and as many different documents, as many pieces of evidence as you possibly can to refute that potential defense of, "Oh, I didn't know." Um, even though, mm-hmm. you know, ignorance of law is no defense, nevertheless, Anticipating that they'll hear that at some point, Uh, they want to have plenty in their pockets to uh, counteract it in the mind of the jury.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, what do we have from uh, Hugo Lowell, our buddy at The Guardian, talking about Corcoran's notes? This was an incredible story.
2: Yeah, no doubt. So, Hugo says that federal prosecutors have evidence that Donald Trump was put on notice that he could not retain any classified documents after he was subpoenaed for their return last year. So, this previously unreported warning conveyed to Trump by his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, could be significant in the criminal investigations surrounding Trump's handling of classified materials, given that it shows that he knew about his subpoena obligations. So, A.G., last June, Corcoran found roughly 40 classified documents in the storage room at Mar-a-Lago, as we've been talking about, and he, of course, told the Justice Department that no further materials remained at the property. Now, that warning was one of several key moments that Corcoran recounted in roughly all right, sit down, 50 pages of notes that he <laughs> dictated after his interactions with Donald Trump. Um, and now these notes are being described to the Guardian. <laughs> that is a lot of notes. Holy cow.
1: Yeah. And they reveal uh, how Trump and Walt Nauta that you were talking about earlier had unusual detailed knowledge, Like a like we wouldn't expect them to know these things unless they were like really steeped in it about the botched subpoena response, including where Corcoran intended to search and not search for classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, as well as when Corcoran was actually doing his search. And uh, we've talked about this before. Those notes ended up in front of a grand jury, uh, same way that we got uh, some of the previous testimony from Corcoran, especially about that June 24th phone call about the uh, tapes, surveillance tapes subpoena, but these notes were found to be in furtherance of a crime and pierced the attorney-client privilege. That's right. And were, they had to be handed over uh, to to the special counsel's office. And that's how they got a hold of these 50 pages of notes. Also included in the notes, uh, Andy, how Corcoran told Walt Nauta about the subpoena before he started looking for classified documents. Because... Corcoran needed him to unlock the storage room.
2: So imagine this: Cor- Corcoran has detailed conversations with Trump and Nada after receiving the subpoena, which he explains to them. Now, as a result of the subpoena, we have to go out. I, as your lawyer, have to go out and search where these documents are located to to, to round up the classified and give it back because you're not allowed to keep it. And I'm going to search in this room. And I'm going to search it at this time. And I need you, Mister Nada, to help me enter the room to help me unlock the unlock the door so I can get in there. And I don't want you to come in with me. Knowing that, you then have possibly evidence of boxes going in and out of the same room at the hands of Walt Nada and the helpful assistant who's now testifying. At the testifying. direction of Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> this is. I mean, it's like it's such a completely Uh, constructed tale, that narrative that we keep talking about just gets more detailed and vivid. Really, you can like imagine these things happening. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. And also in the notes, they suggested to prosecutors in these notes that there were times when the storage room, and this blows my mind, might have been left unlocked and unattended while the search for classified documents was ongoing because it took a couple of days to look through all of these things. And every once in a while, Corcoran would take a break and go hang out by the pool and just leave (laughs) it wide open.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I don't even know where to go with this. It's like, it's the gang that couldn't shoot straight and the gang who didn't want to shoot straight. I don't know. It's, uh, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And then uh, there's also in the notes here, Donald Trump asked Corcoran whether he could not comply. He could push back against the Justice Department right in, right in the notes. Uh, and And if you ask me that that note right there could be the reason all fifty pages had to be turned over <laughs> the, the crime fraud exception because uh, that's pretty blatant intent to obstruct justice. Can I push back on justice? I mean it it's
2: look, it certainly can be I'm trying to be um, I'm trying to be <laughs> I'm trying to be fair here. Could he have meant, hey, is there a way that we could legally challenge the subpoena? Can we file a motion to quash the subpoena as being overbroad or, or irrelevant or, or what, what have you? Yeah, that's possible. But when you lay that comment on top of getting your body man to go move the boxes out before or when you know your attorney is going in there to search, it looks a lot worse. I'm just saying it looks a lot worse in that light.
1: Especially if you've plotted to not turn over all the surveillance tapes, <laughs> leave very specific yeah. gaps, if in yeah. fact that was also on purpose. And again, this is all speculative at this point, but um, that's pretty much what's going on uh, with these Corcoran notes. There's going to be more information coming out about these, I'm sure, as as the days uh, could you know, go on here. Um, I know that there's uh, additional reporting that we, that we can be looking for about maybe further discussions with some of the uh, attorneys involved and uh so we're gonna keep an eye on that. And as always, follow Hugo Lowell. Um, follow him on Twitter, follow him on social media. And if, you know, if you're able to, throw a couple of bucks to The Guardian because this kind of reporting is so, so important for us to understand where we're at because the Department of Justice is so tight-lipped on everything, and we just have to, you know, take these little crumbs that we get and do our little speculative dance. But anyway, yes, definitely follow Hugo Lowell. Very good reporting. We have a little more news to get to from Politico about a really interesting group of lawyers that went to have a hearing uh, before the judge in charge of the grand juries. And we'll talk about that. We're just going to take another quick break. Stick around.
0: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
2: Okay, AG, we are back. And we're going to jump now to a story we saw in Politico. said a Justice Department attorney who works closely with the special counsel probing the January 6th attack took on a prominent lawyer, a lawyer who primarily defends social media companies in a sealed appeals court argument on Friday, according to a review of court records. So this attorney is a gentleman named Ari Holtzblatt. He's an attorney with the high powered firm, WilmerHale. He's most recently represented Twitter, Google and Meta He argued against Justice Department trial attorney James Pierce. Now, Holsplat has most frequently represented Twitter in recent months. Pierce is among the DOJ prosecutors working closely with the special counsel Jack Smith's team.
1: Huh. That's really interesting. Uh, And I I just want to give a little background on this because this is one of multiple sort of privilege battles that have gone on uh, under sealed proceeding. Uh, and this has already been ruled on and then the appellate court got a an emergency stay request from whoever this tech company is or who you know and then that was denied so we'll we'll go with the timeline a little bit but this material has presumably already been handed over to Jack Smith but now they're doing they're they're hearing the rest of the underlying appeal um that that, that is still ongoing and The nature of the litigation is very unclear. Uh, We're also guessing that this has to do with the Jack Smith investigation because of Pierce's involvement. Although, I mean, it's right along the same timelines with everything else that Jack Smith is looking at. Docket entries connected to the case suggest it's been going on for months. And uh, like I said, a growing list of secret battles that Smith has had to wage to secure testimony and documents. The closed door argument was supposed to be 30 minutes long, but it took more than two hours. Uh, Andy. And uh, like I said, here's the timeline. Judge Howell ruled in favor of of the Justice Department on March 3rd, prompting a quick appeal, an emergency motion to stay. The same three appeals judges briefly halted the order administratively, did an administrative stay, but then they decided to reject the full stay on March 23rd. And so apparently it was around mid-March that Jack was able to get whatever this stuff is. That he's trying to get. Uh, and it has to do with, Andy, uh, it's a matter about, quote, stored communications. And we know that because that verbiage was listed in a uh, a minute order that had to do with the, the docketing of this case. But it's stored communications, which typically references an effort by prosecutors to obtain communications from third-party sources. Now, in your experience, when you're trying to get stored communications, Gmail, uh, Facebook messages, Twitter DMs, uh, signal, WhatsApp stuff, and you go to that third party, uh, I guess there's probably going to be some fight and then you battle it out and the judge makes a decision. And in this case, they ruled for the Department of Justice. What What is your experience with these stored communications from third party tech companies?
2: So, The the government's efforts to reach stored communications, which can be essential to an investigation, particularly national security investigations, aren't typically the the cause of major court battles, right? So you start out um, probing sources of stored communications with things like 2703D orders, which would be the government reaching out to, let's just say... As a a hypothetical example let's call let's say it's google and you're interested in your um your subjects uh email who they've been in contact with an email so you'd use a 2703 d order to get the metadata that who they've been emailing who'd been emailing them back on what days at what times things like that but it doesn't get you the content of the communications in order to get the actual content of that stored communications these are historical emails that are still sitting in the account of your uh, of your subject, you need a search warrant. Or if it's a national security case, you need a FISA warrant. So those are, like I said, the, the, these uh, requests are pretty typically executed without objection, um, which only draws more attention to what might be happening here, right? So as you mentioned, We're assuming uh, because of the involvement of Pierce, the DOJ attorney, that this is connected to a January 6th effort. We're also assuming that the uh, involvement of Holtzblatt, who's the attorney from Wilmer Hale, that he is likely representing one of these social media or internet tech companies that we know he's represented in the past. Um, But what it looks like is they resisted the government's efforts to obtain that content of communications in some sort of historical folder or um, repository that the internet service provider maintains. That could be emails, could be text messages. It could be end-to-end encrypted messages that may be on the, on the uh, company's servers. This, these are all details we don't know just yet. But nevertheless, the court record here indicates a pretty viciously fought battle.
1: Yeah. And I'm wondering about that too. Cause like you said, we, we usually see these as friendly. Like when they wanted to get Eastman's emails from Chapman University, Chapman was like, cool with us. When they wanted to get the tax information from Mazars, Mazars was like, that's fine with us. Just shoot us a subpoena. We'll yep. send everything right over. Salesforce, uh, with the January 6th committee that sent out all the fundraising emails, Salesforce is like, dude, you can have it, but we, you know, we need a subpoena. Sure. And of course, Trump fought that. Uh, and we don't, uh, I guess. I, I was like a little taken aback by the fact that somebody was fighting against this. And it made me think of like Apple. You know how Apple, if you want something from somebody's iPhone, they're very, they'll they'll fight you on it, Absolutely. you know? Um, and so I, you know, I'm just very curious to see what this tech company is. If it's in fact part of Jack Smith's investigation, Jack Smith won. will we see those stored communications show up in a in a speaking indictment or will they remain sealed until we're all dead and gone under grand jury secrecy <laughs> rules. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm interested in, in this particular court battle because like you said, I generally don't see these tech companies push these third parties, push them back. Like yeah, this.
2: you really don't. And it's, a, it's another kind of indication that much like the battle that was going on underneath the surface over the, uh, accessing or forcing Evan Corcoran to come in and provide his notes and to provide testimony to the grand jury piercing that attorney client privilege Here's another indication of a possible kind of secret battle happening beneath the surface outside of our awareness, um, but being waged by likely the Jack Smith team against, you know, another, another someone else, another party that's trying to resist uh, compliance. It just shows you the scope of the litigation and the activity that this team is covering right now is, is it's massive based on what we know. Um, and then there's all the stuff that we don't know about that I'm sure is going on as well.
1: Yeah, that also answers a lot of questions about why this is taking so long. Uh, And I think all of those questions will—the remaining questions of of that type—will be answered when you see just how extensive uh, the charges are. Uh, Those, these, these speaking indictments, uh, when they happen, and I'm 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 sure they're going to happen. That's you know my two cents. I don't have any inside information on that, but I think we're going to see just how big and sprawling uh, these investigations are, how many witnesses there are, how many terabytes of information you have to analyze and and subpoena and get and then get again because there's a two-step process for for the warrant and all that stuff and all these privilege battles so we will see that hey Andy the uh Stuart Rhodes got 18 years for seditious conspiracy um I'm still waiting for the sentencing order because I want to see how many years he got for which counts uh but 18 18 years, the DOJ was asking for 25. And for the first time, which is what I think is very important here, Judge uh, Amit Mehta agreed to the terror enhancement. He has rejected that in the past for other January 6th Capitol rioters. Um, I think all four times the DOJ tried to bring a terror enhancement in the past. It's been rejected, including by Judge Mehta, but he accepted it in this case. And sentenced him to 18 years. So what is the significance of accepting the terror enhancement for seditious conspiracy? And could this impact charging decisions that Jack Smith makes?
2: Well, I mean, it, it'll definitely have an effect on how the special prosecutor's uh, team looks at the possibility of sentencing, right? Um, I think, first and foremost, this sentence, which is really significant, 18 years is a long federal sentence on it in anybody's estimation. And I think it's a worthy and reasonable acknowledgement of Rhodes's leadership role in his particular issues, right? So, so obviously, seditious conspiracy. This is the court basically saying that we are going to hold the leaders of this activity, those who organize and direct, plan and execute this activity, we're going to hold them to a higher level of accountability. Uh, and 18 years certainly sends that message in a strong way.
1: Yeah, and that speaks to the to the DOJ's motion. Uh, one of the parts of the sentencing recommendation is we have to sentence like people for like crimes at like lengths. That's right. And this is different. This should be considered more like other people who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy and less like other people who have been convicted for being at the Capitol that right. day. Uh, and I think that that, ba- that bears out in the, in the decision. Yeah. And I
2: think a lot of people who've complained from the beginning that, you know, that the, the ground level folks, the underlings, people who just kind of got swept up in the activity and entered the Capitol building and got charged for, you know, whether it's trespassing or obstruction of official proceeding, you know, those folks are getting sentenced to time in jail, some of them and others at the top level of the spectrum are, you know, we're seemingly escaping any sort of serious accountability. Well, what you're seeing here is the Justice Department leveling up. They are slowly getting bigger and bigger fish, people who are involved in building conspiracies and executing those conspiracies, Rhodes being obviously the first big name among them. But we're still, you know, we're waiting to see what the uh, what those convicted in the Proud Boys uh, uh, sedition cases get. Uh, what sort of time they face as well, um, and I think this is a this is a very bad sign for them.
1: Yeah, and I also wonder if it's going to make any of them change their mind about mm, the fact that they're not cooperating. Um, and and you know comes to mind Enrique Tario, who could probably give some really important and useful information about Alex Alex Jones or Roger Stone or what happened at the Willard Hotel on the fifth or. Any of the other, uh, you know, dress rehearsals for the attack on the Capitol that happened in November and December leading up to. Uh, so it'll be yeah. interesting to see. I, I don't have too much hope that anybody will change their mind and flip. But if anything could do it, it could be this kind of a, a sentence that the, the Proud Boys would soon face. All right. That I th- we finally made it through all the news <laughs> this week. The. N- <laughs> The fact that there's not a grand jury going on in the documents case um, is not slowing the news down. But we do have some really thoughtful questions from some listeners. What what did we come up with this week in the, in the questions pile? Well,
2: uh, Alison, we have two really good questions. Actually, I Actually, got a lot of good questions this week. I had to narrow them down to these two. Um, so I'm going to start with one from Janice B. And Janice says, you spent a great deal of time discussing Trump's intent related to classified documents. However, Isn't it the case that, regardless of the arguments about declassification status, the documents are the property of the US government, potentially subject to FOIA or historical research, and they don't belong stashed away at Trump's properties? Is that an important part of the law? Well, it certainly is an important part of the law. And you really don't have to go too much further than that if all you're looking at is something like mishandling, right? You had classified documents in a place that's not certified for storage of classified documents. But as we know, Janice, we're going far beyond that with the Trump document case. We're talking about violations potentially of the Espionage Act, which is kind of like oh, mishandling on steroids, I guess is the best way I could describe it. And more importantly, obstruction of justice. So it's Trump's efforts to thwart the government in recovering those documents that are absolutely undeniably under the law, the property of the government. And to do that, we have to think through these issues of intent, because intent has to be proven as a a part of any of these crimes. And then we go one step further to thinking about how we're going to contradict any defenses that he might put up. So I get it. It seems like we're complicating this a bit, but I guess welcome to the law.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the intent does have a lot to do with whether or not they're classified. Um, I mean, that's a part of the intent. It doesn't have to be there because, you know, like she's like Janice said. We were able to get the search warrant uh on three criminal statutes that don't require any documents to be classified that's right uh, and um and so that that's how you start it, but I don't know that that's how it's it's going to end, well, you know whether we look at because even the espionage act doesn't require it's just national defense information. And in fact, the one statute that he, that Donald Trump himself made a felony after the Hillary thing, mishandling of classified documents, wasn't on the list of of, of statutes um, because, and that would require uh, documents to be classified. And I always kind of thought that the DOJ did it that way on purpose in case the declassification defense ever became an issue. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, you'd be like, but we don't care whether you declassified them with your mind. You had them. You weren't allowed to have them. Uh, But now that we know he's looking to get those documents that prove that Trump understands the process of declassification, that sort of throws a little uh, wrench in the mix there and and is something that uh, is uh, important to consider. So yeah,
2: great question. Great question. All right. Our next question uh, comes to us from, and I I love this listener name, listener is the clash is not for sale. So I feel like Based on listener name alone, this question had to get get read, but nevertheless, (laughs) the question is, are the convicted Proud Boys and Oath Keepers eligible to be president of the United States? Give us the legal nerd deets, please. Well, as the designated legal nerd of this this squad, um, the answer is yes, they're all eligible to be president of the United States. You cannot... Legally purchase a firearm in this country if you have a felony conviction, but you can be president of the United States with a felony conviction. So, all of you felons out there, you know, keep hope alive. If you get a campaign going, the the felon felon uh, felony conviction in your past is no obstacle to becoming president. Uh, no technical obstacle, anyway.
1: Yeah, and this kind of brings up that law I was just talking about, the one that Trump made a. felony Felony from a misdemeanor because it actually says that anyone who's guilty of this crime cannot hold public office. That's never been litigated. And I, in my opinion, uh, and this was my opinion when he tried to bring it against Hillary Clinton, it would not stand up in court because the constitution is, is super clear about what the requirements are to be able to run for president. And there's only three of them. And being a felon doesn't disqualify you. And you would have to amend the Constitution uh, to make that change. And so even if a law, a statute says that you wouldn't be able to hold office again, I, I'm 100% sure, especially with the you know, unholy executive power thing that this particular Supreme Court likes to throw around, That it would ever be that that would ever hold up that that statute. I think that statute would be considered unconstitutional uh, and be found to be unconstitutional. Uh, And because, you know, Trump wanted to charge Hillary with it. In fact, they investigated the Hillary Clinton Foundation until just days before he left office. And if he had found a grand jury somehow that would have brought that charge against Hillary Clinton, she would be barred from running for office again. Uh, that would be challenged in court, and I'm pretty sure it would be thrown out. That's my that's the nerdery constitutional part of it. I'm,
2: I'm going with you on that one. I'm, I agree with you. I think that's um I think any law that tried to accomplish that would have uh, would have a tough road, especially in front of our current court. So we'll have to see. okay, so those are the questions. I just have to give one shout out this week, Allison, to a very long message with multiple questions in it that we received regarding not specifically special counsel stuff, but more um, questions about uh, FISA section 702, which is one of the most complicated, significant, and controversial aspects of our uh, foreign intelligence surveillance authority. And it is up for reauthorization, I think, by the end of this year. So people are talking a lot about it. The question was great. I can't possibly answer it here quickly. It would probably take uh, at least half of a show to cover 702 in any sort of um, depth. But I thought it was worth putting this out there. If people are really interested in something like that, we might think about doing kind of a special episode on 702 for the full-on legal nerd deets uh that we could put out on 702. So if, if people are interested in that, send us a message at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. And of course, put uh, Jack Smith in the subject line and let us know your thoughts about a Totally nerdy half hour or so on 702.
1: Yeah, we could do a bonus for our, uh, for our patrons or something like that um, and then release it to the public. So yeah, I, I, I would love to discuss it because there's a lot of controversy oh, yeah. around FISA Uh, right now in the reauthorization of 702. So that would be very interesting. Well, thank you everybody for your amazing questions. Uh, you can send them in to us at the email address Andy just gave and uh it's been a it's been a long week uh, what could possibly happen next week Andy <laughs> I, I think the answer is anything <laughs> anything could happen it is on this. Yeah. anything yeah may twenty fourth he got the last i think little bit of stuff that he wanted they have been out for three weeks I'm assuming the pros memo is already written if not done and, Close. and, and may Maybe in front of Garland, we don't know. We aren't gonna know um, until those indictments happen. I'm sure that's this is a very uh, leak-proof investigation. But uh, thank you all so much for listening. We will be back next week in your ears, and uh, I just I really appreciate all of you. Uh, so much uh, for, for listening to this show. And Andy, I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for doing this with me.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that I'll be back home base next week and uh, hopefully the sound and the connection will be a little bit better, but uh, off the road and back at home. So looking forward to it.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. Everybody we will see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe.